Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'm a StoryGrid certified editor. I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm also a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm also a writer. And I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So this week, we're studying the short story 310 to Yuma by Elmore Leonard. And we're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the basic building blocks of stories. And if you want to write a story that works, you must be able to write a scene that works. So here's a brief overview of 310 to Yuma, which, in case you missed it, is a Western story. In the beginning hook, Deputy Marshal Paul Scallon and convicted robber Jim Kidd arrive in contention at midnight before Scallon is to transport Kidd to Yuma by train later in the day. They wait in a hotel after leaving strict instructions that no one be informed of their presence. And that goes about as well as you can imagine in the beginning, excuse me, in the middle build, while waiting in the hotel, members of Kid's gang gather in contention, and Kid tells Scallon that he can let him go to save his own life. But when Timpy helps Bob Moons, a brother of a victim of the gang's robbery, sneak into the hotel room intending to kill Kid, Scallon decides to save Kid's life. In the ending payoff, shortly before the train's departure, Kid renews his offer to walk away and save Scallon's life with a nice payout. Scallon declines and with some fancy shooting, gets Kid and himself onto the train in the nick of time. Okay, so let's get into the scene type here. What would you say, Valerie, is uh is the scene type we've got a, a western story and it's a short story so it's got all of the elements we need in a western what what kind of scene are we looking at well full disclosure here leslie and i had quite the conversation about this trying to come up with a scene type <laughs> before we started to record and i think leslie this is one we've settled on a scene type um, and we're reserving the right to change our minds down the road, I believe. Yes. So yes. we're calling this a yes, I can, no, you can't scene type. Uh, we had a bunch of ideas, but since the internal genre here is a morality testing story, the kid is trying to convince Scallon to let him go, and he's, he's doing a good job of it. 
what I like about this uh, short story is that there, it's a battle of wits in, in the first part of the story between Kid and Scallon because Kid knows he cannot escape physically or it's not very likely anyway because he's handcuffed and Scallon has two guns, Kid doesn't have any. If he goes, he'll shoot. Or if he tries to bolt, Scallon will shoot. So the only thing Kid has left is sort of a, a verbal shootout, like a verbal confrontation. And he is trying to, he's trying to manipulate Scallon and say, there's no way you can actually get me to Yuma. You, you can't win this one because my friend Charlie Prince and his posse of six men are outside waiting. So as soon as we leave this hotel room to go to the train, you're a dead man. So why not take the chance now to get out while you can? And to sweeten the pot, I'll give you some money, some more, way more money than you would earn on the job. So there's all these volleys, these intellectual volleys being lobbed at Scallon. And Scallon sort of, sort of has to hit them back, right? Um, yes, you can let me go. No, I can't let you go. Right? And so it's sort of this back and forth. Yes, you can. No, I can't. So that's sort of where we've come to with this. Now, if this was um, a, a story that was taking place, for example, in a high school, a contemporary story in a high school, you could easily see two athletes on opposing teams having this kind of, uh, you know, banging heads trash talking even right and it would be yeah. a bit more overt right right but this is elmore leonard so thankfully it's it's a little more subtle uh, than that but it's the same type of setup for the scene so it's a yes i can no you can't scene type i think anything to add on that one leslie i think that's a good assessment and you know we we're not having the there are no shots fired until the end, right? It's all that verbal, it's almost banter because they don't hate each other, right? Scallon says it's not personal. And I think Kid gets to know Scallon well enough that he's like, ah, oh, he's not a bad guy. Like, I wouldn't want him to be killed. I wanna go, I don't wanna go to prison, but yeah, it's very, both men understand human nature very well, and they're using their wits to try to succeed in their goals. Yeah, there's nothing personal. They both have a job to do here. And one of the things that I like about the story is that both protagonist and antagonist respect one another. There is definitely a degree of respect. Um, Scallon, I was going to say stands up for kid. He's not standing up for a kid. He's not really defending kid, but he is. When Moons says, you're not going to get away with killing my brother, Scallon says he was found innocent by a jury on that particular charge, right? Uh, so, so that just sort of points to Scallon's uh, innate sense of justice. And when Scallon does... Well, when he does his job, when he 
he neutralizes Bob Moons. And when he takes down Charlie Prince and, and the posse of six men, Kid respects that greatly. It's like, oh, well, you, you got more moxie than I thought you did. <laughs> right, that grudging respect at the very end. <laughs> it's wonderful because there's this, you know, where justice intersects with saving kid's life, then there's just no question of what Scallon's going to do. And so that's really, it's interesting because I guess what I'm aiming for in this discussion is really saying that, that Westerns are a combination of crime and action and society. They have, you know, all of those elements are baked into it, but this story really focuses on the morality and the testing and what would you do if you were in these circumstances? So I think that's what makes it a really interesting Western for me because shoot them up, not that interesting. <laughs> so Valerie, what's the power dynamic in the, in the scene? Because we've, you know, we've touched on this a little bit, but What's going on here in terms of who wants what and how are they, how are they working it out? This is one of my favorite parts of the scene because I think the power dynamic here is even. I think these guys are equally skilled in their field. They're equally intelligent. Yes, Scallon has the force of the law behind him right now. Um, and, and he would appear to have the upper hand, but there, is, there are seven guys out there. It is gonna be a seven to one or maybe even an eight to one because you got kid in there too, right? right. So we don't get the sense that Scallon is a superhero. He's good at his job, we see that play out. He is a just man, we see that play out as well, but he is just a man. So it is eight to one. And when there's guns involved, it almost doesn't even really matter because you don't, it's not a wrestling match. It's not a, it's just who has better aim or who has the luckier shot or what have you. So that is something that I really appreciated here because it brings a whole new dynamic to the scene because often we have a scene where, say, say it's a two character scene, okay? your protagonists will go into the scene often with the clear advantage or the clear disadvantage. And the turning point and the value shift change is all about that power, changing hands or not changing hands. So if the protagonist comes into the scene disadvantaged, if power doesn't change hands, by the end of the scene, he's even more disadvantaged than he was, right? Things have gotten worse for him. Or the power did change hands and so now he's got the upper hand here there's no clear difference in the power dynamic they're they're pretty even so it makes it a really interesting intellectual game between them like if you think if you're watching a tennis match because this is kind of a an intellectual tennis match back and forth mm -hmm. and you have two players who are equally matched now you have an exciting game Right? Like, 
Me up against Venus Williams would not be a very interesting game. <laughs> it wouldn't last two seconds. Right? But you get, you get the Williams sisters together. Now it's exciting. Right. So anyway, that's what I think. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, to me, I was like, so one thing, we don't doubt whether Scallon is going to give in, right? I mean, he's pretty, he's a straight shooter, pun intended, <laughs> but I'm from the beginning, right? And so we kind of know how that's going to shake out. But because we don't know, like, we see he's got two guns, he's gotten kid this far, you know, so he's got some skills. This is not the first time he's transported a dangerous prisoner. So he has experience. But how the heck is he going to do this? And, and that's really, you know, that's some extra, extra juice, I think, in the narrative drive of will he, won't he, who's going to win this? How is he going to get away from those, from Charlie Prince and the, and the six others out there? Right. We know he will. We, we know the white hat is going to prevail. Um, it's, like a, it's like a romance. We know there's going to be a happily ever after. In fact, there better be a happily ever after because that's why we pick up that type of book. Someone picking up a Western better see the, the good guys, the force of, of positive win. The white hats better win because that's one of the things that we're looking for. Right, right. And if not, it better be telegraphed from the beginning. Otherwise, you're going to have some seriously disappointed readers. Going to have a lot of one-star reviews, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so how about we look at the story event questions? When we analyze a scene, we we answer the four story event questions, and and we also identify the five commandments of storytelling, and these are covered in detail in the StoryGrid 101 book, which is available as a free download from storygrid.com. All righty, so the first question. What are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? Or as I like to think of it, what are they doing with their hands? Because this question comes from acting, or these questions actually, all of them come from the acting world uh, when, when an actor needs to know, what am I doing on stage physically in this space? Where am I standing? Am I holding something? Am I not holding something? So on and so forth. And I have said that Scallon is escorting kid to prison at Yuma. Just that simple. The second question is a little deeper and sometimes a little more challenging to answer. What is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a, to a universal human value? All righty. I'm willing to be argued with on this one, Leslie. Let me know what you think. Um, well, I'm always will, even if I am convinced I'm absolutely right, I'm willing to be argued with. <laughs> um, Scallon and Kid are evenly matched in terms of power. That's what we were just talking about. So I think the essential action here is that each of them is trying to intimidate the other and to get him to back down. If that's if I look at it on a macro level. And this is where the yes, I can, no, you can't, 
scene type is coming in. What Kit is doing here is testing Scallon. That's what this is all about, testing his resolve. How, you know, how just is this guy? How good is this guy, really? Um, is he, as the, the phrase from Breaking Bad, is he morally flexible <laughs> or not, right? Or is he an honorable guy? That's right. what this is all about. He keeps poking him and poking him. But they're evenly matched. So every time kid throws a challenge at Scallon, he, he tosses it back in a way that is saying, don't bother to test me again because I'm firm in my decision. Right. I, I mean, when I think about what Kid is doing, I remember Jurassic Park and how the Velociraptor was always was testing the fences at different places. Are you vulnerable here? How about here? And just, you know, so he's testing the fences, right? And Scallon, he almost doesn't seem to care whether he can convince Kid or not. It's just he knows who he is. And he's doing his job, and that's it. End of story, right? Now, question three is, the universal human values have, oh, sorry, what hu universal human values have changed for one or more characters in the scene? Which one of those characters, can't even read today, which one of those value changes is most important and should be included in the story grid spreadsheet? Leslie, do you want to have a crack at this one? Sure. So Bob Moons, bless his heart, he has a threat. He serves as a threat to the whole operation. And then he's neutralized. Kid is feeling pretty hopeful in the beginning, but obviously by the end, he grudgingly accepts that there's no hope of, of escape. Now, Scallon, to me, because we're not, there's not much of a question, as we've talked about, that he's going to cave in to, to kids' suggestions. But he is, as you say, threatened, right? I mean, he has to, he's under threat the moment they walk into contention. We don't know that necessarily right away, but we have some suspicions about the guy who seems to be sleeping on the porch, right? Yeah, there's kind of like a flashing neon sign on that guy in the, in the porch, right? Up to no good. <laughs> and so they are threatened from the moment, or he is, Scallon is threatened from the moment they step into contention. And that doesn't end until they are safely aboard the train and chugging away. Now, for Charlie Prince, similar to Bob Moons, he's a threat and then he's neutralized. So then that's, you know, that's it. So in terms of what goes in the spreadsheet, I would probably put the, um, you know, in terms of the Western value, which is subjugation to freedom, in terms of the negative and the positive values, that in a way, Scallon feels subjugated by his 
values, right? He is, he is stuck if he wants to do his job, you know, being in a dangerous situation and not giving in to temptation. But at the end, it feels like he has a real victory and that he does have, he has the courage of his convictions and there's a certain freedom in that. Uh, and, you know, anybody who makes it through a gunfight and jumps on the train as it's pulling out of the station, I think you got to feel pretty pleased with yourself when that happens. This one was challenging for me. I had to really think about it because it is a Western I didn't really feel, I mean, we've, we've already talked about this. I didn't really feel that there was any chance that Scallon wasn't going to do his job and he wasn't going to be uh, upstanding and honorable and for law and justice and all that kind of stuff. I, so, and it's a global external genre. So it, it took me a while. Now I never quite took it as far as you did to the subjugation. Uh, Cause I think I just, I think I ran out of interest. Okay. <laughs> I think I thought moving on to the next question. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a Western and I love all stories, but I have trouble relating to Westerns. It's an intellectual exercise for me. Um, not a, a passion project. I'll open, openly admit that. If you're writing a Western, I might not be your best editor. <laughs> Uh, question four, what is the story event that sums up the scenes on the ground actions, essential tactics, and value change? We will enter that event in the story grid spreadsheet. All right. Again, I looked at it from the external uh, content genre perspective. And I said, Deputy Scallon escorts Jim Kidd to prison at Yuma despite attempts by Bob Moons and Charlie Prince to stop him. I mean, that's pretty superficial. Because it's a global external genre. And I, I love the fact that there is the morality testing aspect to it. Personally, I couldn't go far enough to create a story event from that because I thought, oh boy, I'm really stretching it if I do that. Because it's a Western. It's, it's sort of a shoot em up. And, and because I don't really feel concerned about whether or not Scallon is going to change his mind. Right? I think if I was on the edge of my seat wondering, oh, is he going to take kids deal or is he not going to take kids deal? Because he does have a wife and three children at home. And there are seven guys out there. Who, who are all armed, if I, if I was concerned at all that it was, that there was a real possibility that he would cave or that he was actually going to die or that he wouldn't just walk out with his hat still on his head at the end, uh, <laughs> um, I might have brought the, the internal genre into it more but I just couldn't go there. What did you think? I think this is more than adequate because when we think about what the story event is meant to do, we do want to pull in the conflict, right? Through the essential action. We do want to pull in the literal action. Um, and of course, what the change that happens. Um, but 
ultimately it's to help us remember what the heck the scene is about. So when we look at the spreadsheet, we can see what's that scene? Oh yeah. That scene is about when deputy Scallon escorts kid to prison, despite these other guys trying to get in the way. And obviously this is a, this is a short story. So it's the whole story. But if this were one scene in a larger story, we would still be able to pick this out as the core event, the big shootout when the story question is decided. Okay, so that brings us to the five commandments. And I'm going to just run through these really quickly. Um, they'll be in the show notes in, in more detail, but basically inciting incident, Scallon and Kid arrive in contention. And then we've got a lot of interesting progressive complications that escalate the stakes mostly about in the in the middle build are they going to you know is the effort to get kid on the train going to be over before they even really get started and the turning point progressive complication is when to me it's when kid offers that final time look save yourself and i'll sweeten the pot because i make a lot more than you do and so consider it a gift. And so then does he accept that or not? He does not. And he prepares to get kid to the train on time. And then on the way in the resolution, kid's gang attacks and Scallon and kid make it just in time, which is, it's rather exciting if you're still with it at that point. <laughs> So, Valerie, that brings us to our main discussion, which is what's special about this scene? What are you, what do you see that makes this valuable for writers to study, even if they're not, you know, extremely excited about a Western? Well, this is a classic uh, showdown scene, which is a hero at the mercy of the villain scene, but it's a particular type of hero at the mercy of the villain scene that is particular to a Western. And, you know, we've said many times, it, we're, not, we're not ever wondering if Scallon is going to prevail. So one of the things we can look at in this type of scene where the reader, the reader knows what's going to happen so it's never, the narrative drive is never a question of what will happen next. The narrative drive is a question of how is it going to happen? We know he's going to get away from Charlie and the other six guys. We know that. But we don't know how he's going to do that. When Bob Moon shows up at the door, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, so there he is. Because we saw that guy with the hat down over his eyes on the patio. We knew he was coming back into the story somewhere. There he is. So how is Scallon going to get out of this situation without losing control of Kid? Because now he's got a, a heartbroken hothead who is armed. We've got a convict who is wanting to get out of there and will use any opportunity to bolt. And we've got Timpy, who's just a fool, right? <laughs> who is who? Who is likely going to mess up any attempt that Scallon makes to neutralize the situation. So 
we know he will neutralize it, but the question is how. So these types, we all run into these scenes in our stories. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can avoid them, but there will be times in our story where you, you know your hero is going to make it to the end of the book, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah. when you get your hero and that all is lost moment in your story, we know that the hero is going to somehow get out of that situation. But how are they going to do it? So stories like this are a great way to show you ways to do that, right? Now, the other thing that I'm, I was thinking about with this story, but also about Westerns in general, because like I said, I'm not, I don't dislike them, but they don't resonate with me. Like when I think about, I stand here ironing, where I was, I was, you know, that was very compelling to me because I'm also a mom and I could see where that character was coming from. There's nowhere for me in this particular story to place my empathy. Like I found a heart, like who do I put emotional connections with? There was no one there for me. So it was an intellectual exercise. Interesting. Um, but now that I have read it and I've studied it, I'll put it away and I'm not going to come back to it over and over and over. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just, I just won't. To me, this is, this is a genre that really resonated or resonates with a, a certain type of audience. Um, now, I could be totally wrong here on this. Just because it doesn't resonate to me doesn't mean it doesn't resonate to other women. It totally could. For me, I think of Westerns as my dad's favorite genre, right? Because when he grew up with Westerns, Hopple right. and Cassidy, um, you know, it was of that era. It takes place in a country that is not my country, right? So, so it's a story that takes place in another country. It's male dominated. The women who are in it are tend to be sort of damsels in distress or whores, one or the other, right? So I wonder, you know, there's this frontier uh, aspect to it, which we don't really have here on earth that anymore. Um, although I mean, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of all kinds of exceptions, but in terms of that, that American West, right? Cause you made it all the way to the water. <laughs> you went, you went as far West as you could, right? <laughs> Stealing as we went. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But now that said, just because that is the way a Western was at that time, what I'm wondering is, does that mean that's what a Western always has to be? Or can it evolve now to a genre that is more relevant to a contemporary audience? Because I think of Star Trek, right? The final frontier, there's still frontiers, but is the frontier space? I think of Firefly, which I just love. They're sort of space cowboys, <laughs> right? Right. It, it's the frontier now can be different. The characters can be different, but the 
the essence of the story, the global value can be the same. Just because we haven't yet resurrected the Western and we haven't had a revival of the Western in its previous form doesn't mean it can't happen and doesn't mean it won't happen. So that's, that's sort of where I, my head goes when I'm thinking about Westerns these days. What do you think, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a matter of thinking about the questions in the abstract. And I think also ditching the name. The, the, this genre type, you know, label needs some refreshing. You know, um, in the guilds, we've had some conversations that the idea of the frontier is something that is more, more universal. Simply because, you know, when I think of frontiers, being, you know, living in a place where people are not being very respectful about the pandemic and, you know, and how easy it is to spread it to people who are more vulnerable. To me, it feels very much like a frontier, that there are places even, you know, there are places in this country, even in the U.S., that are handling it pretty well and have it under control. And they're putting up barriers to other, you know, the people from other states where it's, you know, a free for all. (laughs) more or less it's more like the old west right so i see it definitely and then you know americans aren't allowed to go to canada and that sounds like a pretty wise decision to me right now um so we're kind of you know in that we you know thinking about it in different ways like you say like space when it comes to technology different types of technology that there very much is a a frontier where the you know the early scientists who are discovering things have a lot of freedom and independence and then when they start to oh yeah now we need to get the internet under control a little bit so we're going to put all these regulations and restrictions on it so i i do see lots of opportunities and then Firefly, as you say, is a great example. And then Brandon Sanderson has his own uh, Wax and Wayne trilogy that is very much a Western fantasy story. And it's really fun. So we, I do think it needs refreshing. But this, these questions of individual rights versus what society or civilization can impose on individuals is still an important story that we need to keep telling. So, yeah, so that's my, my bit. And I even, I know a few people in the guild who are working on Western stories that they're, you know, they're updating the genre to make them more relevant. So I would, I would argue that the Western very much belongs. It just needs some sprucing up. <laughs> it needs a renovation. It needs a renovation. Because right. the concept behind a Western is still very much accurate. It's, I mean, we're still dealing with, like you say, we're still dealing with similar types of issues. They're just manifesting differently 
because we're in a different place and time now. It's much more of a global community that we're dealing with now, which wasn't the case in, in you know, the Westerns of my dad's day. Right. Which is a very specific thing that I, I think most people think of when you say I'm watching a Western, they have a, a very clear idea of, of what's in their high noon, right? right? Things like that just come to their, um, their minds, Hopalong Cassidy, um, and so on and so forth. It's all very dusty and brown. <laughs> yes, yes. My dad has a shelf of Louis L'Amour books. So yeah, that's, it's very much uh, interesting, I think, that, that a lot of men of that generation were really taken with those stories. It's an interesting thing. Now, what I think about is that those stories were really heavy on the shoot 'em up part. And what I love about this story is the focus on the repartee and the intellectual battle of wits. It still has that feel of shots being exchanged, but it's not, it's not actual violence. So we have that same kind of feeling without too much gore. And I think Elmore Leonard does just a wonderful job of really tight writing, despite the very omniscient point of view. So I think it's a great demonstration of the idea that Westerns are about a line in the sand, having the courage of your convictions, and standing up for what you believe is right and just. So... All right, enough about that. Enough of me cheerleading for the, for the genre. Um, to wind up the show, we like to touch on our key takeaways from the story. So Valerie, what do you have for us this week? Well, I mean, it's just what we were, were talking about. I mean, it's, I, I, I got a new appreciation for Elmore Leonard again, right? It sort of just dusted out. Oh yeah, this guy really can write. I knew he could, yeah. but... But it was just, it, that part was a lot of fun to me. But other than that, the appreciation for, for Leonard's craft, the other key takeaway for me is that the Western is a genre that's due for, um, as my daughter would say, a glow up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's, it's, it needs to be, um, oh, pardon the pun, dusted off and, and reimagined mm -hmm. because I think, I think there's a place for it and we need writers who certainly know the genre better than I do to get in there, pull it apart, reimagine the pieces, update the pieces and put it back together in a way that modern audiences in 2020 and beyond can really get into it and read a Western and enjoy it without realizing they're reading a Western because just the idea of it as a Western doesn't, I mean, I don't think there's many Westerns on the New York times list or in the, in the, in the critical favorites today. So, right. but so, so, it's, it's an opportunity, right? Which is sort of part of the whole Western vibe. 
you go and you you find opportunity beyond like the new frontier beyond your current writing level break into a new frontier of writing see what's in there that can be mined and updated and brushed off and brought forward to keep this genre relevant to modern readers and like you say leslie i think it does need a new name because western really encapsulates what it was yes because it brings a very vivid image to our minds as to what type of story it is uh so on the one hand it's great on the other hand it limits what the genre is and sort of is holding it back a bit from from bursting forward and being something new and exciting right absolutely and the other thing i would say is even if you don't want to write a global western story that the western influence we do see that show up in other genres and one of my favorites is the hard-boiled subgenre of of the crime story because it has you have the 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 lawman you still have a you know a strong lawman who is willing to unleash his shadow or her shadow to you know to avoid a greater injustice happening and so there's a great series called ripper street uh, which is about that uh west chapel i think it is called neighborhood in in london um around you know just before the turn of the century and also uh, ian rankin's books right with rebus you know he's totally all about that the cop who is willing to bend the rules in order to see justice done so I think that if you are interested but not ready to fully embrace the Western genre or frontier or whatever it is called <laughs> going forward, then I think you can still incorporate these elements into your stories. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write. And you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit storygrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.